The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. For those of you who haven't been with us, um, so what we do now is take some time to study God's Word together uh, from the Bible. So I'm in the New Testament. And we are in what is called Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. This is a book in the New Testament written 2,000 years ago. Probably a good 35 years after Jesus died, rose again, ascended, and literally went back into heaven, started his church through his apostles he left behind, and the church began to grow starting in Jerusalem and then spread throughout Jerusalem and then all throughout Israel and then eventually throughout the world, the the Roman Empire at that time. And the apostle Paul was used by God to bring the gospel to all these different nations outside of Jerusalem and Israel. And one of the people that heard the message and got saved was a man named Luke, a physician, medical doctor by training, heard the gospel, got saved, became a Christian, became a good friend of the Apostle Paul, actually followed Paul as he traveled many places doing his ministry and was a partner to Paul, watched Paul firsthand get subjected to all kinds of criticism, getting chased and kicked out of towns where he goes, even watching Paul get arrested and beat up in mob scenes. And Luke wrote down the history of the early church. So that's what this book is. The book of Acts was written by this man named Luke. It's reliable, even today, 2,000 years later, because God himself, through his Holy Spirit, ensured that it would be preserved for his people, for the church. Reliable. Uh, The book of Acts is one of the most historical books in the New Testament. What I mean by that is specific references to historical names of people. Geography is on every page just about. So that's what I mean by historical. And so there are times where you hear critics of the Bible. Oh, I don't believe in the Bible. It's old, archaic. It's out of date. It's unscientific. It's mythical. It's legend. It's blah, blah, blah. It's not historical. Uh, I would challenge any critic, first of all, to say, have you ever read the book of Acts? As you throw out your many allegations to dismiss the credibility of the Bible. Let's start with the book of Acts. Well, that's what one man did years ago in the last century. William Ramsey was his name, scholar. And he decided, you know what, I'm going to go over to the land of the Bible and I'm going to start doing archaeology. And Every time I find a name in the book of Acts, a man or especially a place, I'm going to try to find that place and even prove that it never existed, if possible. Well, he, he took up the challenge and he failed. He couldn't prove the Bible wrong. As a matter of fact, um, he ended up writing some great books on the Apostle Paul, the book of Acts, validating the historicity of the Bible. It was amazing, particularly the geography. And also uh, the characters that are seen in the book of Acts. And that's what we've been seeing. Now, we're, for 23 chapters, we keep coming, coming across names of characters and people that are not fictitious, that can be validated from history, not just history, Secular history. We've seen it time and time again. Well, there's, today is no exception. As we move into Acts chapter 24, we intersect not just in spiritual religious platitudes, but in real human history and with a very well-known character that actually existed in human history, a governor under the auspices of the Roman Empire at the time named Felix. And we're going to see that in just a second. 
uh, but let me give you the context. We just finished chapter 23. We're going to start, so we're going to go chapter 24, verse 1 through 9 is where we're going to be today. And chapter 24 uh, in Acts, 1 through 9, is the Apostle Paul on trial. It's a formal trial. By formal meaning, they're like in a formal courtroom in Caesarea, the capital of Judea at the time, right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Caesarea still exists today. The palace that they were in probably still exists today. I've been there, at least remnants of it, because it was this huge, massive thing that Herod the Great, a real man, spent years, decades building for himself, massive palatial fortress right on the Mediterranean Sea, huge, massive buildings out of things like limestone and marble that were so huge that took hundreds and thousands of slaves to even move those and make them. They are still intact and in place there today. You go visit it. This is a real place. This is where it happened, Caesarea, at Herod's fortress. Well, in time, King Herod, he died, and then the Romans basically took over his property. So the setting today is in Herod's palace, but it is now occupied by the Romans. The Romans, they rule the world at this time. They allow other nations to have quasi-freedom, kind of freedom on a leash, if you will. If you obey our laws, you can have your freedom. But the Romans took over Herod's palace. And so uh, at this point in history, with the Apostle Paul's there, in the palace, it had several buildings. They had the Romans live there. And the Roman governor would live there in Caesarea. That was his residence. So, And the Roman governor lived in Caesarea, but he was responsible for overseeing things in Jerusalem, which was down and to the south, about 60 miles. And the Roman governor was in charge, really, of the 1,000 Roman soldiers in Jerusalem who actually had a residence right next to the temple of the Jews. And so the Roman governor, he was in charge. And he had, so he was in charge of many different locations throughout Palestine. And that was true in Paul's day. And the governor that was in charge at the time in Paul's day in this scenario was a governor. His name was Felix. At this time in history, when Paul goes to trial before Felix in Caesarea, in Herod's palace, in that courtroom setting there, Felix is literally going to sit like on a tribunal as the judge. He's not just a governor. He also has a dual role as the judge. So he's going to hear this case. There's a prosecution team. You got your lawyers, professional lawyers, and then you got the accused. That's Paul. And there's going to be a prosecution, there's going to be a defense, and then there's going to be a verdict rendered by Felix, the Roman authority, the governor, and the judge. And before Felix, Felix, by the way, he was governor from about 52 A.D. to about 58 A.D. We know from the Bible, this is in uh, the fifth year of Felix's reign as governor. So, Chapter 24 of the book of Acts actually happens around 56 A.D. That's where we are in history. 56 A.D. is when this trial happened. And we know a lot about Felix. Well, some from the Bible right here, chapter 23, chapter 24, chapter 25 of Acts. But we even know more about Felix this governor from other reliable historians. Not uh, biblical historians, secular historians. You go to the public library... You look under a secular encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, the world book. You look up Antonius Felix, you will find him. And all the encyclopedias will say the same thing about him. They don't deviate. 
And everything they say is consistent 100% with what the Bible scenario presents about Felix. He's in the right time frame, 52 to 58. He reigned seven years. He was uh, spontaneously pulled from his reign. And even the way he's described. And the main sources that tell us about Felix from history are Josephus. He was not a Christian. And Tacitus. Tacitus, very respected ancient historian. Tacitus lived and wrote at the end of the first century, primarily between like 100 A.D. to 120 A.D. when he died. Uh, And some of the books that he wrote on he wrote specifically on history of this time period in the Roman Empire, particularly of these Roman emperors and, and governors. In the annals and in the histories by Tacitus, you can look him up. And he's very specific. He even specifically, explicitly mentions Felix and talks about what kind of governor he was. So does Josephus. You take those two together, they are totally consistent. You take Tacitus, Josephus, and the Bible, it's all totally consistent. Utterly reliable. So we're going to see Felix. And so it's from primarily secular history. We'll learn some very specific things about Felix and what kind of person he was, governor he was, when he reigned, what his downfall was. So we're going to get to that in just a second, a little bit more about Felix. But before I do, because this is a courtroom setting, and as I was reading this and the outcome of it, I said there was going to be a verdict. That is coming. A verdict is coming. Uh, Verse 10 and following. I'm just thinking, wow, here's another example of just prostituted justice. Another example. Because this has been happening all throughout the, the New Testament and the Apostle Paul. He can't get a fair shake. He can't get a fair trial. He can't even get a trial sometimes. So in the context here in Acts 24, Paul is in custody. Paul is arrested. Paul is in chains. Paul is a prisoner. Paul is shackled up in Caesar's prison house. Actually, he's living in Caesar's house. I mean, in uh, the house of the governor, which used to be Herod's house, the palace. And Paul's living there, and he's he's a prisoner. Well, what is his crime? And we talked about this last week. Paul is a prisoner because his crime was he believed in Jesus. That was his crime. Really? And also, yeah, he did tell people about Jesus. That was his crime. They didn't like that. He, he told people about Jesus. Well, okay, yeah, a little more detail. He actually at times preached publicly about Jesus. That was his crime. That's what made them angry. That's what created uh, the mob. That's why they tackled him and tried to beat him to a bloody pulp even to death. And that's why the Romans intervened, picked him up, and put him in jail without a trial. That was his crime, Paul the Apostle. Loving Jesus and trying to tell other people about Jesus, the Savior, so that they might be forgiven of their sins, have a right relationship with God, have eternal life right now, and when they die, have the confidence knowing they will go to heaven, not hell. That was Paul's crime. Because he was a messenger of the good news. By the way, every time Paul shared the gospel, there were things you could and could not do in the Roman Republic publicly. The Romans, they had the the Pax Romana, I don't know if you're familiar with that, you might be, Pax Romana, Latin words, Pax, peace, Romana, the Roman peace. So Paul lived during the day where the Roman Empire reigned supreme. They controlled almost the entire world, the then-known world at that time, and everywhere they went, the Roman soldiers, they'd march in, say at some point they marched into Palestine, Israel, Jerusalem, and took over the land, the Romans did, And then they told the Jews, well, you know what? You can have your peace. You can have your rights. You can still have your temple. You can 
have your priesthood. You can practice your laws. You can do your Jewish thing. You can make your sacrifices. You can kill those bloody animals. You can make your own laws and not allow Gentiles in your court right or your temple as long as you follow the rules. And the, the most important rule for the Romans was don't create any civil disobedience. Don't be rabble rousers. Don't create any insurrection or trouble publicly. We want to maintain basic public civil order. And if you can believe in your weird religion and do your crazy things while abiding by our laws, then you'll be okay and we'll, we'll let you do that. But... Just to make sure, we're going to leave a thousand Roman soldiers armed right here in Jerusalem. And by the way, we're going to build a building adjacent to your temple. And it's going to be three stories high. And it's actually going to oversee all that you do in your temple. And we're going to have a not only centurions, we're also going to have a chiliarch in charge of a thousand soldiers. And he's going to be directly accountable and communicating with the governor right here 60 miles away. And if there's a problem, we're going to squelch it. And we're going to squelch it with an iron fist. And that's how the Romans operated. So they'd go into town after town, country after country, all over the world, and they would subdue it, plunder, kill, whatever else. And then they'd try to make peace with the locals and say, you know what, you can do your thing, but here's the main law. You need to maintain civil. You can't be involved in trying to overthrow the government. That ain't going to work. So just to make sure we're going to... So they would leave Roman soldiers all over the world, trying to maintain peace, peace, Pax Romana, the Roman peace. So that's what they were trying to do. But as you're going around trying to conquer the whole world, you have limited resources. It's kind of like when you're playing strategy, the board game, and you got all your pieces and you invade all these countries. But as you go, you're losing soldiers, right? And so now you enter a town and you've got 100 soldiers, but you've got like 500,000 citizens. And if the 500,000 decide, you know what? We don't like you being here. We are going to overthrow you. And so that's why the Romans insisted, no, you will keep the peace. And if there is a hint of public disorder or civil disobedience, we are going to squelch it immediately to the death. That's what they did. So relatively speaking, there was this Roman peace for about 200 years. From like 27 B.C. till 180 A.D. That was the time period of the Roman peace. But if you look closely enough at the historical books, it wasn't really a time of peace. It was a time of the Roman boot on your throat, ensuring you wouldn't rebel. That was true even in Jerusalem where they had at least three wars, so-called during the time of Roman peace. The first one, the first Jewish war from 66 AD to 73 AD when Jerusalem was just utterly wiped out. The temple was destroyed. Jews were massacred by the Romans. But that was under the Roman peace. But that's because the Jews were rebelling. We don't want the, the Romans telling us what to do. We don't want to be slaves to the Roman Empire. So that's just important background to, to all of this. That's what's going on here. And so you've got uh, Felix here. He is now the new Roman governor over Jerusalem and surrounding areas, residing in Caesarea in the old palace of Herod, where he's going to be the judge. Before, By the way, he is the third or, yeah, he's one of three Roman governors mentioned in the New Testament. The first one was Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor, who was the judge at Jesus' trial. And it's the same scenario. These angry Jews come before Pilate saying, because they couldn't get their way, and technically the Jews weren't supposed to 
uh, enact any kind of death penalty without the approval of Rome, i.e., the, the approval of Pilate. So the Jews who hated Jesus, that's why they went before Pilate. And so Pilate gives Jesus a hearing, talks to Jesus personally, tries to, there's, you know, listens to a couple of witnesses who are liars, and then uh, Pilate rendered his decision. Jesus was subjected, by the way, to six different trials in less than 12 hours. Kangaroo trials, false spontaneous mock trials, setups. Nevertheless, three times, Governor, Judge, Pontius Pilate said, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. Three times. In other words, Jesus is not guilty. Jesus is innocent. <laughs> Nevertheless, he had him murdered on a cross. That, that's prostituted justice. Now, so that's kind of the theme in the New Testament, and we see it time after time after time. So it was Stephen earlier in Acts chapter 7. He was a Christian. What was his, he was arrested. He was on trial for what? For believing in Jesus and teaching about Jesus in a synagogue, which is where you're supposed to teach about religious things. Goes to trial, and it's totally unjust. And they just storm the courtroom, drag him out of the city, and murder him on the spot. That was what happened in the courtroom. And the same thing with the Apostle Paul. He got arrested in Philippi, we saw earlier in Acts 16, just for preaching Jesus. He didn't even get a trial. They just start beating him up publicly. Then they arrest him. They throw him in prison. They beat him almost to, to death. And then they just start asking questions after they beat him almost to Oh, by the way, who are you? Oh, you're a Roman citizen? Oh, okay, wow. We shouldn't have done that. Oh, yeah, you shouldn't be in prison. Okay, we're going to let you out. By the way, leave our city and never come back. That's what Paul's been subjected to. City after city after city, decade after decade. It's been over 25 years now. And Jesus told Paul in the 30s when Paul got saved by Jesus, Jesus came literally in a, came down from heaven in a special vision and called Paul, saved him and told him, you're going to be an apostle, you're going to represent me, and you are going to be subjected to suffering on my behalf. And he was for 25 years. We see it now. And you're going to be imprisoned Nevertheless, you will go before governors and kings. So here it is 25 years later. We see the fulfillment of the promise Jesus made in Acts 9 when he told Paul, someday you will go before governors and kings because in 25 and 26, 24 and 25 of Acts, Paul is now before a governor and he will be before King Agrippa II in this same scenario under trial. With no justice. And so as I was reading this this week, I'm thinking, man, this is so frustrating. He doesn't get any justice. And then you look at the characters involved. The judge uh, is the governor, Felix. And then we start reading history about what kind of guy this guy. When you go to court and you have a judge, you want the judge to be a fair guy, right? And I hope at least, okay, if he's not a Christian, at least I hope he knows the law. And if he knows the law, I hope he's like committed unbiasedly to the law. I also hope he's not or she's not a coward. And that she's going to rule in light of the facts according to the law and render a legitimate, fair, just verdict. That's what I'm hoping when I go to a courtroom and I have to confront a judge. Well, when you read about Felix, that is not the, that is the exact opposite of Felix. According to history, according to Josephus, according to Tacitus, according to reliable history, and even from the way he operates here, uh, there are some horrible things about this Felix guy. First of all, he became a governor and a judge because of nepotism. What is that? That's because of family relations you have. It's not like who you are, it's who you know. You become somebody, receive a favor or power, not in light of your qualifications, training, experience, giftedness. 
has nothing to do with you or your character. It's who you know. And Felix had a, an influential brother, Pallas, rhymes with Dallas, who happened to be best buddies with Claudius the emperor. Claudius the emperor. Horrible, wicked king, emperor. And Claudius, in a favor to Pallas, said, yeah, okay, you got a brother. And so he does a favor for Pallas, and he puts Felix in charge with the authority of a governor as a favor. Not because he's qualified or trained as a favor. By the way, Felix was born a slave, reared as a slave, grew up as a slave, and then at some point, because of money, 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 somewhere in the family, he earned his freedom. And then through nepotism and a favor, he ends up getting assigned this position of one of the most influential, authoritative positions in all of Palestine at the time, governor and judge. And with regard to his character, uh, he was a thug, to put it mildly. He was brutal, and that was his history. That was his pedigree. He ruled for seven years, and after five years of ruling at this point, already from Acts 21, we know that he was brutal, rapacious, mean, a murderer, because in Acts 21, it hints at how he subdued a resurrection, uh, a sur- uh, sorry, an insurrection that happened just a few years before where somebody came among the Jews and tried to stir up a mob and an insurrection of 4,000 Jews against Rome and overthrow them locally. Uh, Felix caught wind of it, and he snuffed it out and just whoosh, had those people executed instantaneously. He was also known, according to Tacitus and Josephus, uh, to snuff out any of his enemies or anybody he suspected would undermine his power, anybody close to him. That's how dictators operate, by the way, and that's what Felix did. Have him murdered, have him killed, even innocent citizens, had them slaughtered. He was guilty for all kinds of illegitimate crucifixions that we know on record. So he, was, he, had, he didn't have the character of a just judge at all. He was sexually immoral. He was on his third married woman that was illegitimate that he stole from another man. So he was immoral, unjust. He's also a total coward. We see that even in the passage, let alone history. Coward. He wasn't objective. He, would, he wasn't courageous. He wouldn't make decisions based on law and the evidence. We see that with Paul. He should have rendered a verdict, and he doesn't. Out of fear of the Jews, because they're always creating insurrections and going around murdering people and murdering Roman soldiers spontaneously all the time in the shadows and in the dark, Felix had a little bit of a fear of the influential leadership of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. They were a vicious, vile bunch. And Felix feared them. And so as a result of fearing them, and he knew that they wanted Paul dead, but out of fear, he refused to make a judgment. That's what he did. He wouldn't rule in favor of the Jews who hated Paul. He would not rule in favor of Paul and the evidence that Paul was not guilty and innocent. So he just left Paul in prison to rot for two years. We're going to see that. That's Felix. And he was so bad. He was so notorious. His reputation was so bad of being so evil, so cruel, so mean, creating such dissension among the Jews. He was killing people who were innocent and without cause time and time again that it just made the Jews more angry and angry so that they're getting riled up, the whole Jewish nation, against Rome, their hatred towards Rome. And it culminates just a few years later with the war in 70 A.D., And Felix is a part of perpetuating that. So when Claudius dies, the emperor, a new emperor takes over. His name is Nero. Nero is the one who had Paul murdered and Peter murdered in the 60s. 
Nero was the one that went on a rampage slaughtering Christians for entertainment and fun. Nero. He was vicious and vile. But Nero heard about Felix's reputation that Felix was so out of control and so cruel that Nero fired him and recalled him in 58 A.D. and put somebody else in his place, a man named Festus. We're going to meet him in the book of Acts. That just shows you how incredibly cowardice, corrupt, just utterly vacuous, empty of any character whatsoever. That's Felix. He's our governor. He's the one going to be listening to the case today. So with that, let's go ahead and look at it. Um, Paul has been on his third missionary journey. He finished the missionary journey, traveled a thousand miles, came to Jerusalem, uh, had a bunch of money that he gave to the suffering Christians in Jerusalem, uh, rejoicing with the Christians that are there in Jerusalem. He hasn't been to Jerusalem very often at all, the 25 years he's been saved. So a lot of Christians don't even know who he is or what he looks like. He's not even there just a few days in Jerusalem, and he's in the public temple as a practicing Jewish Christian, offering sacrifices legitimately, publicly, at the time of Pentecost, the feast in Jerusalem, like he's legitimately allowed to do. And then all of a sudden, some Jews who know of Paul, who are not Christian, who are from Asia, who have seen Paul before and had to deal with him, they see Paul there, and so they start a riot, and they start yelling and lying about him publicly. This man is desecrating the temple. He's a blasphemer. Everybody, help us. Come. Stop him. And so instant mob in the temple courtyard of the Jews right there. Hundreds of Jews flock as they're listening to these false accusers, point the finger at Paul, calling him a blasphemer. Blasphemy warranted the death penalty, and that's why all these righteous Jews, they just, they're just they kicking Paul. First, they drag him out of the Jewish area and put him in the court of the Gentiles so he won't poison the temple anymore. Then they start kicking him and beating him literally almost to death. That's when the Romans intervene. The Roman commander pulls Paul out, kind of rescues him, wants to take him away. Then Paul's thrown into the Roman prison. Then he's subjected to that trial by the Jews. Then he doesn't get any justice before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And then Lysias, the Roman commander, decides, okay, I'm going to send him up to Felix. I don't know what to do with this guy, Paul. But he's a Roman citizen. He has rights. Man, and the Jews, they're dangerous. Uh, So I got to get this guy off my hands. So that's why he sends him to Caesarea. That's why there is this trial here. Lysias, the Roman commander, wants nothing more to do with Paul because he fears the Jews. So now Paul is in this courtroom. He goes before Felix. Felix uh, receives Paul and asks him, where are you from? He says, I'm from Cilicia. And then Felix says, okay, that's my jurisdiction. I can give you a trial. And we'll have a trial when your accusers come. When the Jews who hate you, when they come and get here, we'll have our trial. So five days later, the trial begins. That's the context. Let's go ahead and look at it. Verses 1 through 9. And on your uh, bulletin there, I gave you a little, just a three-point outline uh, to follow. So let's go to point number one. Uh, which covers uh, just the first verse introducing the trial. It's a formal, official trial. First point there, we meet uh, the prosecution team, those who are going to accuse Paul. Just like Felix said, we'll start the trial when your accusers come. Well, they have. took a few days. First, they had to get notice. Okay, uh, Felix wants you here in the courtroom. He's not going to do this without you. We need witnesses. We need a prosecution. We need somebody to bring accusation in a formal setting against this guy named Paul. So you're just going to have to come down here. You're going to have to representatives come down here. So they comply and agree. So the Jews were trying to kill Paul in the Sanhedrin. They come down, travel their 60 miles, and arrive at Caesarea to the formal trial. 
And in verse 1, we meet the prosecution or the team that is going to try to have Paul accused. Look at verse 1. So after five days, the high priest Ananias. Ananias was the Supreme Court Justice of the Jewish Supreme Court, which was called the Sanhedrin. It had 71 members. We met them uh, last week. Ananias. By the way, this is extremely rare, we know from history, for a high priest to travel somewhere to do a trial. They just didn't do that. I think this speaks of the utter disdain that Ananias had for Paul. He wanted Paul dead. Remember Paul? How he embarrassed Ananias at the trial just five days previous when Paul was in Jerusalem and he's before the Sanhedrin. And Ananias, when he had Paul on trial, Paul gave his testimony in a couple sentences. Then Ananias, the high priest, told somebody to punch Paul in the face in the courtroom. And so somebody went up and slapped Paul in the face and Paul immediately responded to Ananias, God will smite you, you whitewashed wall. That's what he called him in the courtroom. Ananias never forgot. Wow, this guy deserves to die. I will go to Caesarea myself if I have to. And so that's why it says Ananias first. He is the high priest. He's the main authority of the Jews. He's like the Supreme Court justice. He came down from Jerusalem, ascending down from Jerusalem to Caesarea with some elders. These were select representatives with Ananias. These were people, no doubt, who were sympathetic to the cause of Ananias, those who hated Paul, from the trial we saw at the Sanhedrin, it was probably Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection or visions, or or things that Paul was saying he was on trial for? Maybe the guy that punched Paul in the face? Jewish elders. That's his team. Ananias, some select elders, with the attorney, the lawyer, Tertullus. With a certain attorney named... Now, who was presiding at the trial a week before with the Sanhedrin? It was Ananias, the high priest. He has now delegated that responsibility to this guy named Tertullus. We don't know who he is, never met him before. He's nowhere else in the Bible. Just out of nowhere comes this guy, Tertullus. Who is he? With a certain attorney. Some translations say with a certain orator. The Greek word is rhetoris, where we get rhetoric. Rhetoric, R-H-E-T-O-R. What is rhetoric? Rhetoric is the art and the science of, of speaking well, waxing eloquent. That's that's what rhetorician is, a rhetorician was. They were known not for telling the truth, but for speaking with a silver tongue. It was all superficial. It was all technique, practice, smooth, cadence, word choice, diction, persuasion, emphasis. That's how he was trained. He was a trained rhetorician. It was all about the delivery. It wasn't about truth. It was not about the facts. So who knows where they got this guy. Tertullus, by the way, it's a Latinized uh, Italian slash kind of a name. Some people think he was Italian. He was Jewish, no doubt, because he was a master of Jewish law. But he was a lawyer, so he was also a master. And he was also Hellenized uh, Greek, in other words, because by virtue of his name, master of Greek and probably a master of Roman law as well. And he knew what laws were important uh, important to to Felix. We know that from the case he presents. So here's Tertullus. By the way, Tertullus is the diminutive form of the name Tertius, another name, Tertius. And Tertullus, diminutive, the small, 
meaning the small guy. So it could be that he was this short little lawyer with a small man's complex or whatever, with this silver, oily tongue, trained in rhetoric, trained to persuade, took speech in high school, probably did very well, speech and debate. They hired this guy. This guy was not around earlier in the Sanhedrin. This guy was not around at the time of the mob. This guy was not an eyewitness for all we know. But he's going to talk like he was one when he's talking to Felix. Felix has no idea who these guys are, the elders in Tertullus. Felix probably just thinks, oh, yeah, Tertullus, he's one of the Jews. Yeah, he's with, with them. Oh, yeah, he's, boy, he's very, he has a beautiful portfolio. This guy's amazing. Whoa, he talks nice. That is impressive. He knows four languages? He's a smooth, oily dude. Lawyer. Tertullus. And they brought charges to the governor against Paul. So there's the introduction of the spokesperson, Tertullus. Uh, point number two, verses two through eight. And here we're going to see what does this lawyer actually say when he opens his mouth, starting at verse two. So there's the prosecution. They take their seats. Then Felix brings Paul out of prison. Paul was summoned, brought him to the courtroom, had him sit in his assigned place. He didn't have a lawyer, Paul, by the way. He doesn't have a team. It could be that Luke is allowed to be there to watch. So it could be some of Paul's friends are there. It doesn't say that. But the details of this account are given, and Luke probably could have been there firsthand. And so that's why he's able to summarize the details of what happened. Or he just asked Paul about it later. But it was said that Paul had some liberties and freedoms where he uh, people could come and go as visitors. So it could be that Luke was there watching, but Luke wasn't allowed to say anything. Paul has, Paul has to defend himself. And uh, so point number two there, I put after the lawyer, the lies. The lie. That's what this lawyer does. What does he present? He's supposed to present his case. What does that mean? Present the facts. Today in America, supposedly, you go into the courtroom, you raise your hand, you put your hand on the Bible, and you promise to do what? Tell the truth, not just the truth, the whole truth. The whole truth. Because liars, deceivers, selectively leave out things they don't want people to know. They don't want to tell the whole truth. Guilty people don't want to divulge the whole truth. That's why it says, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Nothing but the truth is don't add anything that's not true. So don't leave anything that's true out and don't add anything that's not true. Do you promise to do that? Yes. That's justice. That's the law. That's the way it should be. Well, that was also true of this guy. That was the expectation God created for this guy, Tertullus. He was Jewish. He was a master of the Jewish law. The, the high priest, Ananias, was supposed to be the guardian of the Mosaic law. He was supposed to be the number one practitioner of it, the, wonder, the number one proponent of it and propagator of it in all of its detail. And you look at Mosaic law, God gave the law to Moses and the Israelites, and the Jews. And it was a just law, it was a perfect law, and it was supposed to manage how they lived. They were supposed to live by law. All those 633 laws that God gave to Moses and the Israelite community, they were fair laws, they, were, they reflected the very nature of God. Every law under the Mosaic Covenant was a just law because it's, it reflected God's character. So it was just law. By the way, it was permanent, unviable law because it was written down. Written law, that's what you want. You want law that is written down. It doesn't change with the times. It doesn't change with whimsical leaders as they come and go. 
or the fashions of the times. It is written down. Very important. Not every culture does that. The United States has a written constitution which makes it very unique in history. But God did that first with the Mosaic Law. It was written down. It is unchanging. It is clear. It's objective. You can read it. It is right there. There is no question. So it's just to reflect God's character. It is written down. Uh, by the way, it's also objective because in any courtroom situation, according to Mosaic law in the days of Moses, if somebody was accused of a crime, if you didn't have the testimony of two or three witnesses, the case was thrown out. So that's objective. You, this can't just be hearsay. It can't just be a personal vendetta you have against somebody and falsely accuse them. That happens all the time. You know, today in America, it's kind of sad. You are guilty by virtue of an accusation in in the public eye. If you're high profile, Billy, uh, uh, I was thinking of Franklin Graham. CNN or some news channel could just instantly say, Franklin Graham has been suspected of or accused of money laundering. It doesn't have to be true. Now all of a sudden, he has been, his image has been uh, smeared here in America. He is guilty, not as charged and after the facts. It's guilty by virtue of an accusation. Well, you couldn't do that with the law, uh, law of Moses. So if the judge is there, okay, you made an accusation against this person. Do you have a testimony? Do you have two or three witnesses to validate this? Do you have any evidence? No, okay, then it's thrown out. See ya, bye. That, that's objective. Very important. And that's how God wanted to operate because he wanted to be according to truth. He wanted it, the accusations to be validated and verified because the, main, the most important thing for God is it has to be true. That's why one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. That doesn't, that's not really talking about lying. Your five-year-old that's lying because they took a chocolate chip cookie. And yet, did you take a chocolate chip cookie? No, Daddy, I didn't. And he's got chocolate chips all over his chin. And there's one of the cookies is missing. And there's a ladder by the refrigerator. And the cookie jar's on the refrigerator. But anyway, so thou shalt bear false witness is actually talking about legal courtroom setting. Lying in the courtroom, don't do that. Unacceptable. Well, it happens all the time, doesn't it? In our justice system. I mean, I think our justice system is so compromised and messed up so often. Not all the time, but so often. I just think of the Supreme Court. Just so you know, we got nine Supreme Court justices in America. Four of them are utterly, totally, morally bankrupt. And how many compromised evil lawyers do we have in America? If you're a lawyer here today, I'm not talking about you. You're a nice lawyer, totally. You are. I would want you if I was going to court, man. I want you. But anyway. There are a lot of compromised lawyers, and a lot of lawyers, they'll admit, why you, you want to be a lawyer when you grow up? Yeah, why? Because I want to make a lot of money. Wow, whoo! That's not justice. And there's a lot of corrupt judges all over this country as well, and around the world, and that's, that's nothing new. It, it's true in the Bible 2,000 years ago. This has always been true. It's not the system. It is because humanity is evil and corrupt in the heart to the core from birth. That's why. So we're not going to fix this problem of injustice in our legal system, justice system, court system in our day or until Jesus comes again. He is the judge. He is the just judge. He's the righteous judge. We'll never get a fair hearing. So in the meantime, you get some good judges and mostly you'll get some bad judges. Occasionally you get a good lawyer. Most of the time you get a bad lawyer. Uh, And then you also have good laws and you have a whole bunch of really bad, messed up laws, evil laws, evil, wicked, 
evil laws, like the law in America that says it's okay to murder a baby while it's still in the womb. One million innocent babies getting slaughtered every year. And that's tolerated by the law of the land. That's evil. That is satanic. That is wicked. God will deal with it. So we got a lot of compromise. Some of you, no doubt, have a history of being frustrated because you couldn't get justice. You get, you get hit by a car, and it turns out it was their fault, and lo and behold, the guy or the driver doesn't have any insurance. And it's going to cost 2500 bucks to fix your car, and the insurance company can't do anything because they didn't have insurance, or they're a hit and run, you never see them again. And you've got injuries to your body. You've got bills, and you ain't going to get no justice. Or maybe you own a home here in California or a, a, a condo, and you're renting it out, and you got somebody that starts to stop paying the bill. They're not paying rent anymore. And you try to kick them out of your house that you own. And you find out, according to the laws of California, you can't kick them out. And they could go one month without paying rent, and you can't do anything about it. They can go two months, three months, up to six months of not paying rent in your house that you own, and you can't do anything about it, according to the law. All the while, you're trying to pay your bill. I'm paying my rent on the house I'm renting, and at the same time, i got still got to pay my mortgage. That's very common. That happens all the time. That's injustice. This comes back to the sinfulness of man. And so Paul was confronted with that. And so he's got another sinfulness. We talked about how terrible Felix was. Well, Tertullus, the lawyer, he was also evil. Lies. He's a liar. As you read the passage objectively from verses 2 to 8, you can tell when Tertullus, the lawyer, is lying. It's every time his lips are moving. I'm not exaggerating. Let's look at it. Tertullus the liar. He spoke, okay, give me the facts. Present your case. Well, how does he start? Uh, verse 2, and after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying to the governor, okay, what's your accusation? Since we have through you, Felix, attained much peace. We who? The Jews. Now, keep in mind, the reality is the Jews hate the Romans. Okay, they hate the Roman soldiers, they hate the Roman governors, they hate the Roman Caesar, they hate that Rome has basically uh, Jews in subservience to them and have taken away their autonomy and independence and have to do all these things that the Romans require. And yet Tertullus, the lying lawyer, says, what? Oh, Felix, the Roman governor, since we have through you attained much peace, that's a lie. The Jews haven't attained any peace through the Romans. All they've gotten is bloodshed for decades. As a matter of fact, the Romans are going to wipe him out in 70 A.D., 15 years later after he made the statement. Since you, through Felix, we have attained much peace, and since by your providence, by your goodness, by your gentleness, by your kindness, that's the Greek word for providence, by your goodness and kindness, and everything we know that is true about Felix, according to Josephus Tacitus' history, he was anything but kind and good. He was evil. He was a thug. He was mean. This is absolutely contrary to the truth. So Tertullus, the lying, the lying lawyer, he's lying with every phrase that comes out of his mouth. He doesn't mean it. He is not sincere on anything he says here. What is he doing? He's, he's flattering the judge. He's warming him up. He's trying to uh, pump him up and puff him up so that he can get a, a good hearing. This is manipulation. This is, he's trying to win him over emotionally with platitudes and flattery. 
heaping praises upon unjust men. That's what he's doing. Since we have through your through you attained much peace, and since by your goodness and gentleness and provident reforms are being carried out from this nation. By the way, historians can find zero good reforms that Felix ever did on behalf of the Jews. Zero. As a matter of fact, he did just the opposite. They lived in fear of him. So how many lies are heaped up in verse 2? He, he goes on. Verse 3. And we acknowledge this in every way. We, the Jews, acknowledge this in every way. Lie. Verse 3. And we, the Jews, acknowledge this everywhere. Lie. Most excellent Felix. Lie. With all thankfulness. Lie. This is just, he's dripping with lies. This is hard to take. It's, I mean, Felix knew the Jews hated him because he didn't like them either. I wonder what Felix is thinking. He's sitting there. He's either just eating this up. Oh, this is fantastic. As his, all of his court jesters are there watching. Or he sees through it and realizes, Felix, shut up and get on with the case. Because that's very possible. Because it could be at some point. Because there are a couple times where Felix gestures in this text. He does this to Paul, summons him, stop, that kind of thing. So it, just curious as to what Felix... But all of a sudden he's abruptly interrupted with his uh, litany of platitudes towards Felix. Because in verse 4, he's, all of a sudden he changes gears to Tolly's and he says, But that I may not weary you any further. I don't want to be tedious anymore. Probably because... Felix is waving his finger. I beg you to grant us by your kindness, another lie. He was not kind. A brief hearing. This is funny that he says a brief hearing. Brief. I have little to say. That's what Tertullius would say. I have very little to say. Why? Because he had no truth to present. Paul is not guilty. He can't go on and on. You can only lie so much. Oh, I'll be very brief with you. Verse 5. For we have found lie... You didn't find anything. You're not an eyewitness as far as we know. You're a professional hired paid lawyer speaking lies on behalf of the Sanhedrin and the high priest. He is not being sincere. But that I may not weary you any further. Verse five. Oh, for we have found this man. Uh, we have found this man, this man, Paul, this man, won't even name him, a real Pest. The NASB says pest. That's a terrible translation. It's We have found this man to be a real plague or pestilence. What is a pestilence or a plague? Like the bubonic plague or any plague. What is a plague? The common denominator is a plague. It is widespread. It spreads quickly and it kills people. And the only way to get rid of it is to quarantine it and eradicate it. That's what he's saying. Paul is like a pestilence. He's a plague. He spreads a disease and death everywhere he goes. He needs to be quarantined, and hopefully he needs to be eradicated. He needs to be stopped. He needs to be killed. That's what Tertullus is arguing. He's a plague. And that's not objective, and that's not evidence. That's a, an opinion. That's all you got? He's a plague? Really? Well, let's get specific. Well, he's a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Well, that's a lie. We've been studying the Apostle Paul everywhere he goes. He has been around the entire Roman world. He never has disturbed up dissension. He's always followed the laws of the land. He was always obedient even to the local laws of the land. He was sensitive to the culture. He was sensitive to the local authorities. He even said that in 1 Corinthians 9, wherever I go, if uh, to the Jews, I try to be a Jew. To the Gentiles, I try to be a Gentile. Uh, so he always abided by the law. Romans 13, he said, uh, Christians, wherever you go, you need to submit to the authorities. You need to obey the authorities. And he said that in a time when all the authorities were evil and rotten and corrupt to the core. And he's telling Christians, I know he's a pagan, 
Christian killer of a king. So bow the knee anyway out of respect to God because no authority is put in place apart from God's doing. God is sovereign. When you honor the king, you honor God. That was Paul's mentality. That's how he walked everywhere he went. So he abided by all the laws, national laws, local laws. He was, he was an exemplary citizen. He was a model and paragon of peace. Anything but one who stirs up. He loved people. So this is an outright lie, misrepresentation, smearing his character, his reputation. Felix doesn't know Tertullus and Felix doesn't know Paul. So this could be very, very persuasive uh, to Felix. He, he could get influenced by this. This is poison. Polluting the mind of Felix. He didn't have any scruples anyway, so it was easy to poison his mind. He stirs up dissension. See, in this, he knew this was, uh, this was, this was the first main charge. In other words, Tertullus was saying, you know what, Felix? This man is guilty of sedition. That is the one thing that a Roman governor did not want to hear. Wait, this guy is a rabble rouser. He creates civil disobedience. He's a vigilante. He creates mob scenes wherever he goes. He stirs up and messes up the Pax Romana of Rome. That's going to get me in trouble with Caesar, and I will lose my position as governor. That needs to be stopped and snuffed out now. That's how governors thought and operated. We've seen this time and time again. So this lawyer, he's slick. He knows that. I am dealing with a Roman judge, and I'm going to start with Roman law number one, you don't violate, and that is create sedition. Uprisings, upheaval, mobs, resistance to the government. So this this could have been very persuasive and concerning of Felix. Now he's like, whoa, I better listen more carefully to this Tertullus guy. That cannot be tolerated. Stirs up dissension. So that's the first false charge, dissension. He stirs up dissension all over the world. And by the way, how is Tertullus going to know this? First, so you need evidence. He's been doing this all over the world. And one of Paul's argument, he's going to take this argument head on and say, that is not true. I've only been here for, I've been in town for 12 days. I've spent five days in your, your prison. So in seven days, tell me how in seven days I was able to go around the entire world and stir up dissension. That will be Paul's defense. So that's a lie. Stirring up dissension uh, among all the Jews, and specifically the Jews, was very concerning because up to this time, even during the Maccabean period, for the 200 years before Christ, the Maccabees were revolting violently as vigilantes, killing Romans. Hiding in the bushes, hiding on the roadside, jump on the back of a Roman soldier, slit his throat when he's unawares. And, and Rome had to put up with this for decades and decades until finally it was like, man, you know what? We just better do something to appease these Jews because they are coming out of the woodwork and they will not relent. And so that's why they made a compromise with the Jews. They wouldn't make with any other people under the Roman Empire. So this was very important. The Jews, among the Jews, he's stirring up dissension, but of all people among the Jews who had a reputation throughout the world, uh, and then he says this. Here's another false charge. Oh, by the way, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's a, he's a cult leader, which would also ring particularly important to Felix because the main religion was the worship of Caesar. 
Caesar is Lord. You need to bow the knee to that. You need to agree to that first and foremost. You can believe whatever you want, but it starts there. And your allegiance and loyalty, first and foremost, is to Caesar. If you deviate from that, you are guilty. You can't live. And so here he's saying he's a cult leader of the Nazarenes, some weird, crazy, false religion that undermines Roman paganism. So those are two huge blows against Paul's reputation to a Roman judge. Then there's a third charge, and this is of a Jewish nature, verse 6. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. Now, earlier, Paul was accused of desecrating the temple. So Tertullus, he's changed it, added a little bit of a nuance because that didn't work. That was just blatantly false. This is still false. This is the charge of blasphemy. The The Jews were allowed to enact the death penalty for very few things, according to the Roman government. One of them was desecrating the temple. The Jew, that was a compromise the Jews made. Okay, yeah, uh, I don't know if we're comfortable letting you um, enact the death penalty. And then they came to a compromise. Okay, but uh, only in very limited circumstances. Okay, desecrating your temple. Um, okay, we'll give you that one. And that's what they accused Jesus of, by the way, so they could kill him. He desecrates the temple. This was blasphemy from a Jewish point of view. This is the next charge. Paul is guilty of blasphemy. Paul is guilty of a crime worthy of the death penalty. And as a result, so we arrested him for sedition, disloyalty, blasphemy, death penalty. And then we arrested him. Lie. They began to beat him up. They didn't arrest him. They wanted to kill him. Then... uh, I'm going to read, if you have a New American Standard or an NIV, you probably uh, don't have a verse 7, skips over. I'm going to read it, uh, New King James, King James, says in verse 6, So we, uh, we arrested him, and we wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the Roman commander, came along with much violence. Lysias took Paul out of our hands, that's a lie, ordering his accusers to come before you. Just another lie. Verse 8, And by examining him yourself... That's either examining Paul yourself or Lysias, the Roman commander, which is probably what it's referring to, Felix. Concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him, which is another lie, not true. Felix is going to examine Paul, and he's not going to render a verdict out of utter fear. He was afraid of the Jews. Oh, by the way, Felix was also afraid of his wife, Drusilla. We'll see that next time. And then at the end of the prosecution, as they end, they conclude with this, verse 9, we need, you need evidence, you need testimony of two or three witnesses. Well, here they are, verse 9. And the Jews, who's that, probably Ananias, the high priest, and the elders that came with them, they all had a conspiratorial lie that they agreed upon. Okay, let's all say this in concert. To make sure we're not contradicting ourselves, here's our lie. Everybody got it in writing? Everybody got the bullet points? Everybody got the talking points? Don't mess up. Remember your lie. Don't forget your lie. Don't contradict your lie. Ready, break. And the Jews also joined in the attack, accusing Paul falsely, asserting that these things were so. Then Tertullus, I arrest my case. Well, then what happens? Well, verse 10, and when the governor had nodded, see, there's these gestures he's making as the authoritative judge. He nods to Paul, you may present your case, which we will see next time. What is Paul's defense? And with that, just a couple of closing thoughts. Practical takeaways from this. 
I've already mentioned several of them, that if you want justice in this life, um, it's not guaranteed on a human level. And actually, that's the nature of being a Christian. Uh, Jesus said you're going to suffer persecution, and you got to just, Jesus is the judge, right? 1 Corinthians 12, I mean, sorry, Romans 12 says, justice is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that's where we put our trust. He's the sovereign one. He's the only just judge. He's the only one that knows everything. We will find comfort, solace, uh, everything else in him. That's how a Christian, that needs to be the Christian worldview. Also, a couple of good takeaways are, as, an, as a citizen of any country or nation that you're in, you need to, I need to, in light of Romans 13, be respectful of the government and the nation in which we live and submit to the laws of that land. I travel the world. When I go to India, I don't think, hmm, how can I sneak in here without or, and, and violate their immigration laws and demand my rights? No, it's I got to jump through the right hoops because I'm a Christian and a witness for Jesus. And they even have laws and rules in certain places I go that are kind of weird or sometimes corrupt or compromised. And I think, okay, as a Christian, you obey laws until they totally contradict God's word, forcing you to sin. Then you obey the higher law, which is God's law. And then you can have a clear conscience as you are led by God. With that, let's go to the Father in prayer together. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for meeting us here through your Holy Spirit, but also speaking through the truth of your word. Thank you for the many principles in this text of 2,000 years ago that are relevant and practical for us. Those of us who know you, who are Christians, thank you for the Holy Spirit who sensitizes our conscience and how we can best live for you. Help all of us be good citizens, submissive to the ordained authorities, being a blessed witness for you wherever you go. Help us to continue to love people no matter what their view is, their worldview, their practice. But we would be a light of truth, but also of love to them. But God, we need your help to do it. We thank you. We love you. We commit all this to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.